Many of you already know this about me, but uh, my favorite singer is Johnny Cash. How many of you like Johnny Cash? Oh, good. I'm in good company. We all like Johnny Cash. Now, what do you like about Johnny Cash? He, yeah, he's real. That's, that's what I like about him, too. I mean, his music is good. I like his music. Uh, I would listen to his music just because. But what I love about Johnny Cash is perhaps more than any worship song or singer, uh, I find that he draws me into worship because he can sing an album like Folsom Prison Blues. It has the lyric in it, I shot a man in Reno just so I could watch him die. And then, without any contradiction, at least in him, his own mind, he can then sing uh, an album called My Mother's Hymn Book with songs like Amazing Grace. And, and those two extremes are, are captured in the one man. And if you objectively just stand back and look at him, you say, well, how, how can that be the same person? And yet he was as authentic singing in Folsom Prison as he was singing at church or at a, a Billy Graham crusade. Because his character arc, who he was as a man, was big enough to encompass both of those realities at the same time. Which makes Johnny Cash a trophy of grace. And that's why I love Johnny Cash. I, I can listen to almost any Johnny Cash song and be drawn into worship. It doesn't have to be an overtly Christian song because there's something about the heart of the man that I'm drawn to. And I think it's because I see myself in him. I see the seeming contradiction in my own life. I, I know myself. I, I know who I've been. and I know who I want to become. And I see the big distance between those two men. Maybe, maybe you can relate to the same thing, that you know yourself. That like Johnny Cash, maybe there are days when maybe this wouldn't be your lyric, but you could sing something like, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And then clean yourself up, put on some different clothes, come to church, and sing Amazing Grace. The very same reason that I love Johnny Cash is why I love David. This is David. Uh, when I think of David, I think that he has a lot in common with Johnny Cash. I think the two of them right now in heaven are saying, wow, we are kindred spirits. We are so much alike. One was a singer, the other was a king. But there was something about both men that was so similar to one another. I think they're probably fast friends up in heaven now, and I can't wait to hang out with them. Just me and Johnny Cash and King David. So let's take a look at King David. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're not going to do the whole chapter today. We're going to look at the first 30 verses. As you're looking for your place, would you please stand? 1 Samuel 17 verses 1 to 30. This is the Word of God. 1 Samuel 17 starting in verse 1 all the way to verse 30. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. 
that they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come up to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commanders of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went. And Jesse, just as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to do battle, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, 
Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. The word of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we take a look at this history, I pray that you would help us to understand it. Help us to see the way in which you've inspired it to be preserved for us in our Bibles. And Lord, would it speak to us, giving us comfort and hope, pointing us to the grace available in the Son of David, Jesus Christ, our God and our King. Build up this church and glorify your name, the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. If you were with us last week you'll, or the last couple of weeks, you'll know that this is not the first time that we have become acquainted with David. In fact, chapter 17 is the second introduction to David. Chapter 16 is the first introduction to David. And so in the Bible, in 1 Samuel, there is very intentionally a double introduction for David. The Bible introduces him twice in two very different ways. So let's just recap very quickly about chapter 16 before we take a look at chapter 17. In chapter 16, we said that the Bible introduces David in a vertical way. That is, from God to David. It's a, it's a top down. We, we understand something about David vertically. We see a chain of vertical relationships that start with David and go all, or sorry, start with God and go all the way down to David. And so God speaks to Samuel and tells Samuel to go to Jesse and to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel. And then we go through three eldest sons. We have Eliab, then Abinadab, then Shema, and then brother number four, brother number three, brother number two, brother number one. Then we have David. So you see there the way that it's introduced from God to the prophet to the father through seven brothers, finally to the youngest, which is David. And then in the second half of the chapter, the very same thing, King Saul calls for David. Saul sends a servant to Jesse to fetch David to come to him. And so you have the top down from the king to the servant to the father, again to David. And in both of these interactions, David is entirely passive. He doesn't even speak. He just does what he's told. 
And so what was our conclusion in these past weeks? Our conclusion is that chapter 16 is God's way of telling us that David is his choice. God has chosen David. David has done nothing. David has said nothing. David has not positioned himself to be chosen. He is the eighth of eight sons in a, in a family in Bethlehem. God has picked him, chosen him, plucked him out of obscurity, and said, you will be the next king of Israel. So the goal of chapter 16, if we see how it's structured vertically, is to expose David's relationship with God. Or, conversely, God's relationship with David. It's a top-down kind of chapter, a divine favor kind of chapter. It's the love of God overflowing from on high and crescendoing through the prophet, through the father, through the brothers to David himself. Now, we get to chapter 17, and there's hardly anything vertical. God's not really even mentioned at all, except he will come out on the lips of David. But, but God is not a key player in this chapter. In fact, what we see in chapter 17 is that this chapter is, is given to us very much on the horizontal plane. Let's just take a moment to see how this chapter is sketched and written for us horizontally. First of all, this effect of horizontal narrative is achieved by the setting itself. Take a look at the first three verses. As I, as I read these verses to you, just picture them for me, and what you're going to do is you're going to picture a setting that is very horizontal. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in the Ephes Demim. Even this place where they are is described as this place between two places. Horizontal, just geographically, if you're thinking. Verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side... And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. So just picture that spatially. If you could just picture what's being described for you, and there's a picture of it up there, what you see is a very horizontal presentation of the spatial setting in which this chapter is going to unfold. You have two armies on two mountains. They're against one another. One is over here. The other is over there, and there's a valley between them. And so if you're going through chapter 16 and you're, you see this dynamic, this relational dynamic that's very vertical, all of a sudden you're jarred by the horizontal description of the, of the spatial setting. Now you also have within this setting the movement of the characters. Take a look at verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So, so you have already, you're picturing these two armies encamped on the other side of each, each on the side of the valley. And one of these armies, the Philistines, sends forth their champion. And he moves horizontally just down a little bit into the valley. And he's going to challenge the other army to send their champion from their camp into the same valley. And so you're drawing on horizontal movement of potentially two champions from their armies to the middle, which is in this valley. Take a look at verse 8. 
He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. Exactly what I said. So you see this, this tension. And you'll know that, that Goliath was nine foot nine in, a, in our measurements. Almost ten feet tall. Almost the height of a basketball net. Who's the tallest man in Israel? Saul, head and shoulders above everyone else. So, so really this chapter is a story of Goliath and Saul, but Saul doesn't go forward. What we're trying to see though is that he, Goliath is trying to draw Saul out to do battle. Go down to verse 14. Now we're in Bethlehem. David, the youngest, the eldest, the three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So even here we have the activity of David, which is given to us not on the vertical sphere or plane, but on the horizontal. David is going back and forth. And we remember at the end of chapter 16, David was summoned by Saul to become Saul's music therapist. Now he's going back and forth from Saul to Bethlehem, horizontally, Bethlehem to the Valley of Elah, tending sheep, providing music therapy. Tending sheep, providing music therapy. Go down to verse 20. Again, we're just looking for the way in which this is all being captured for us on the horizontal uh, plane. David rose early in the morning. He left the sheep with the keeper, took the provisions and went, just as Jesse, his father, had commanded him. He went to the encampment as the host was going out to do battle, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. So this, for the very first time, we see David being active. He's tending the sheep. He gets up early in the morning. He leaves the sheep with the keeper. He runs with the provisions. He leaves the provisions that his father had given to him with the keeper of the baggage. That's in contrast to Saul, who was hiding in the baggage when he was chosen to be king. And then he runs to the front of the battle line where Goliath comes forward and taunts Israel again. So do you see what, what we're doing here? We have this, the spatial setting, which is described on the horizontal plane. We have the activity of characters, characters going to and fro. We have the Philistines and the Israelites camped on either side of a valley. This is a horizontal chapter. Even temporally, we get the effect of a horizontal aspect to this chapter. Compare, for example, 1 Samuel 16, verse 11. Remember, chapter 16 is vertical. When Samuel is looking to anoint one of Jesse's sons, and he's going through uh, all seven sons, he's like, well, none of these are chosen. Do you have another son? In verse 11, there remains yet the youngest, said Jesse, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. There's an immediacy, which has this sort of, this, this feeling of, we're going to do this now. It's right now which has this effect temporally of sort of this vertical aspect. Now look in contrast to the temporal scene that's sketched in chapter 17. Verse 16, chapter 17. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Chapter 16, vertical, right away. Chapter 17, horizontal. Spatially, the activity of the characters, but also the amount of time that elapses. For 40 days in this 
valley of Elah with army on both sides. Goliath comes forward horizontally, challenges the Israelites. Nobody comes forward. He goes back 40 times. You say, what's the big deal? Like, why are you making such a big deal of vertical and horizontal? Well, remember, the goal of, of presenting David vertically is to show God's relationship with David and David's relationship with God. What then is the goal of this second introduction of David? Chapter 17 is going to expose for us David as a man among men. So we have David's relationship with God, vertical. That's really important if we're going to understand who David is. But we also have David's relationship with men, horizontal. Which means this. The Bible in 1 Samuel 16 and 17 introduces David with multidimensional characterization. His character arc is complex. It, it has to do with the vertical and the horizontal. And if you neglect one for the other, then you do injustice to the Bible's presentation of who David is. You cannot just say that God, David was a man after God's own heart, that God loved him, he had a good relationship with God, and he wrote a lot of psalms. That's true of David, but that's not all the Bible says about David. Neither can you say that David was merely a political animal who tried to further his own career at the expense of Saul and others. In order to understand David, we must understand him on two axes. The y-axis, if you know anything about math, is vertical. It goes up and down. The y-axis throughout the scripture is going to chart David's spiritual side. David's relationship with God. God's relationship with David. But the Bible also presents David with an x-axis, which will chart David's political side. David's relationship with people. Thus, in the Bible, David is presented to us as a very complex Man, a proper reading will defy a one-dimensional characterization of this man. Is David a pious man of faith? Or is David a ruthless man of politics? He's both. And it's not always easy to hold those two things together. And what we want to do is to make it easier to understand, and so we want to understand David either on the vertical, which is the most common in the church, or on the horizontal, which is very common in the academy among scholars. But in the church, we can't afford to do either. We can't just understand David through the prism of his relationship with God and God's relationship with him. Neither can we only understand David uh, through the lens of his relationship with other people. He's a complicated man filled with good and bad, spirituality and carnality. He's a God of worship, or, sorry, a king and a man of worship, and he is also a king and a man of war and bloodshed. And if we're going to understand David and his role in salvation history, we have to understand these two things about him. So keep all of this in mind as we transition now in the, in the last part of this sermon to take a look at his first words. Because in his first words, we're going to see both the vertical and the horizontal aspects to who David is. 
In Hebrew narrative, we very often get a good description of what makes a person tick. Uh, the narrator doesn't often tell us, well, David was this kind of man and he was a that kind of a man. We, ha- we are left to sort of glean information about men and women in the Bible by the things that they say, the things that they do, and the way in which God interacts with them and other people interact with them. And so we have to draw a conclusion. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, about ambiguity. But in Hebrew narrative, in place of that, especially for the main characters, especially for for people like David or a Moses or a Joseph or other main characters, their first words give us an insight into the core of who they are. So when you're reading through the Bible, just remember that. Try and find a character's first words, a man or a woman, their first words in the Bible. And if you can find their first words, ask yourselves, what does this tell me about who I ought to expect this person to be? And so if we take a look at David's first words, first of all, we need to sketch their context. So his first words come in verse 26. But the context begins in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12 through 15. Now David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse. And Jesse had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. The names of his three sons who went into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep. So what do we learn about about David here? We find out that he is the son of a man named Jesse who has eight sons. And in the days of Saul, that is, by the time Saul was king, Jesse, who is the man, was already old and advanced in years. Jesse's about to die. We don't know when. It may be weeks, months, or years, but it's not decades. Jesse's old. And the three oldest sons, you'll remember in chapter 16, were also uh, named by name, or or we were given their names. We don't know the names of son four, five, six, or seven. We just know one, two, three, and eight. Right? We know that the oldest was Eliab. We know the second was Abinadab. The third was Shammah. We don't know anyone else until we get to the eighth, David. We know David's name because he's a key player in the narrative. But why do we know the, the name of the oldest three? Probably the inheritance of Jesse would have run out by the time we get to Shema. So whatever Jesse had accumulated as far as wealth and prestige and power and influence in Bethlehem, that probably mostly got passed down to Eliab, maybe a little bit went to Abinadab, and a, a touch to Shema. But after that, uh, boys four through eight, they're on their own. They've got to eke out a living by themselves. Which means that David's prospects at this point in his life are not very good. He's young. He's eighth. He's got no chance of an inheritance. His dad is about to die. And an opportunity is presented to him. And so go down to verse 20. David is going back and forth between Saul 
and, and Jesse, so he's going back and forth from the sheep in Bethlehem to doing music therapy at the front lines of battle. And finally, his dad says, I want you to take this care package to the commanders of your, son, of your brothers because I don't want them on the front lines. I don't want them to die. And the, if they die, then the cheese will dry up. So you give this cheese to their commanders. They won't put, the commanders won't put your oldest brothers into the line of battle in a dangerous place because they want to keep getting cheese. So David says, okay, great, I can do that. I can, I can be an errand boy. But as he's taken this care package to preserve the life of his oldest brothers, which isn't actually in David's best interest, by the way, if he wants an inheritance. So he's, he's being asked by his dad to do something that's not in his best interest. He gets there, and take a look at verse 23. He leaves all that stuff in the charge of the keeper of the baggage. He had no intention of actually trying to keep his brothers out of harm's way. Uh, you know, keeper of the baggage, hold on to this cheese for me. And he ran to the front of battle. He wanted to see where the action was. And look at verse 23. As he talked to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. What are the same words as before? Goliath comes forward and he says, send out your best man to fight me. If I win, you'll serve me. If you win, we'll serve you. And, and, and for 40 days this has been happening and everybody is petrified and, and, and scared. And David is there. He's left the cheese care package with the, with the baggage holders. And he's there and he says, this is my chance. Take a look at the end of verse 23. And David heard him. Why are we given that information? If you're the eighth of eight and you have no earthly prospects for wealth or advancement in life, you think, well, maybe here is an opportunity for me. And it just gets better. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, Goliath, they fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, and when I read this, I want you to remember that David is listening. He's scoring up the opportunity. He's saying, there's an opportunity here for me, and it just gets better right here. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. These are the men of Israel talking. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. And he will give him his daughter, the princess. And he will make his father's house free in Israel. To be free, you probably don't have to pay taxes and you probably won't be conscripted. That's what it means to be free. So David is there. He's like, hmm. What is the prize for the man who kills this? Well, riches, a princess, tax-free status, and conscription-free status for my whole family. This is his golden ticket. And this is the context of David's first words. Jesse is old and soon to die. David has no hope of an inheritance. He has no hope of societal advancement. All of a sudden, he sees a chance to grasp at his golden ticket. That's the context for David's first words. Now, let's take a look at his first words in verse 26. We can divide his first words into two parts. The first part of his first words exist on the horizontal. So we are going back to this horizontal and vertical. The very first thing that David says in the Bible is on the horizontal plane about 
his interest as a man among men. The second part of his first words uh, really reflect the vertical, his relationship with God and God's relationship with him. Take a look at verse 26. These are David's first words. David said to the men who stood by him, almost in disbelief, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? What David is doing here is he probably wants to make sure that he heard this right. I get riches, a princess, and tax-free status. My family won't have to fight in any more wars. And so he says, uh, what will be done? Horizontal. It's all about his self-interest at this point. Take a look at verse 30. After he says, gets this confirmed, his brother rebukes him, and that's verses 28 through 29. But then in verse 30, and this is really important if we're going to understand the first part of David's first words, David turned away from his brother toward another, and he spoke in the same way. And all the people answered him again as before. This is what I want you to, to, to picture with David. What shall be done for the man who kills this other guy? And he's told the reward. He goes to another group of people. What will be done for the man who kills Goliath? And he gets the answer. This is the reward. And then he goes to another group. What will be done to the man who kills that champion? And he's told. What is he doing? Is he thick? Like he's just not hearing it? He wants everyone to know that he knows what the promised reward is because he has every intention of going out onto that battlefield and killing the Philistine champion. So he wants to confirm that there is a prize. And after he kills Goliath, he wants to come back and say to the king, listen, king, I know what the reward was because all these people told me. And that will force the king to follow through and give him the reward. What's the reward? Riches, a princess, tax-free status, and a family free of conscription. That's David on the horizontal. That's David not really looking out for God's glory, but for his own opportunity and glory. But now we transition to the second part of David's first words. Halfway through verse 26. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And that's the David that we've all come to know and to love. You see, even while David is sort of squaring this up for his own personal advancement, for his own glory, for his own riches, for his own opportunities as a man among men, he's looking around and he's saying, are you guys serious? Do you not look at this theologically? Are we not in covenant with the God of the universe? And you're allowing this guy, big as he is, to come forward and to defy you, the army of the living God? The army of the living God is not just Israel on the bank, but all the host of heaven. David says, you, you guys don't understand the situation. This is why when we get to the battlefield itself, if you look at verses 45 through 47, David runs out to Goliath and he says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
But this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead, bo- your, I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the men of the earth will know that there is a God in Israel." And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. You see how complex David is going around. What will be done for the man who kills this champion? What will be done for the man who kills this champion? You come to me with a javelin and a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts in glory. He does both. So complex. And that's the vertical side of David that we see from chapter 16. So, what motivated David to step onto the battlefield to fight with Goliath? Was it horizontal, self focused gain and reward? He had no hope unless he killed that giant. He would have been an obscure pauper just eking out a living trying to get enough food on the table for himself and his family for the rest of his life. Is that why he went onto the battlefield? Or was it his faith in God? In God's covenant with Israel. David just couldn't stomach God's chosen people cowering on the sideline. Well, some Philistine who's uncircumcised, meaning not in covenant with God, came forward and shouted insults at Israel and their God. He couldn't believe that Israel's champion, Saul, trembled with fear. Why did he go on the battlefield? The great thing about David is is both those reasons propelled him forward. He saw something in it for himself and he saw the name of God being defamed. And so he acted. Now if we're going to understand David moving forward in this series, we have to always understand that David is influenced by both of these tendencies. He's always going to look at every opportunity, every situation through the lens of what is good for me? What is politically expedient? And how do I think about this theologically? through God's relationship with me and God's covenant with Israel. And and if we neglect one or the other, we just won't understand David. We need both. Just to bring home the point, in 1 Kings chapter 2, just flip there. This will close our time. We see David's last words. We see his first words that start on the horizontal and then proceed to the vertical. That is, David as a political operative, a man among men, and then transition to his relationship with God. At the very end of his life, we see the, the, the same two dynamics still at play. He, he's on his deathbed. He speaks to Solomon, and he, he begins by, by telling Solomon to walk in the ways of the Lord, 
And then after that, that's vertical. After that, the horizontal. But he, here are the political things you have to keep in mind, son. Let's just read it. First Kings 2. When David's time to draw, die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Vertical or horizontal? That's vertical, right? That's David and God. That's the spiritual David. Moreover, verse 5, you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gildadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahiram, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went from Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do, what you ought to, do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. You see, David? The vertical and the horizontal. The man of faith and the man of politics. The pious man and the man among men. Now notice, if we take just David's first words and his last words, it it creates a perfect envelope. His very first words, the first uh, words of his first words are on the horizontal, right? What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And his very last words of his last words, do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Horizontal, political, brutal. Right? In both instances, it's all about the gain for David and his house. But then right inside his first and last words, so the second part of his first words and the first part of his last words, it's the vertical. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Son, Solomon, come here. I'm about to die and go the way of my fathers. You must walk in the ways of the Lord your God, being careful to do all that he has commanded you, walking uprightly, keeping covenant. Which one is David? He's both. Now, What's the point for us? David is complex, and we are also complex people. We're not one-dimensional. We, we all came here to sing worship to God today, but what did you do with your tongue uh, yesterday? Yesterday. 
The problem when we make David just a vertical character in the Bible, just this man of faith, we can't relate to him. But, just like I said, Johnny Cash is a great trophy of grace. That's why I love Johnny Cash. So is David. And as we go through the life of David, as we see his rise to power, we're going to see him doing things that are not always beyond the pale. They're, they're, he's not always acting in righteousness. You cannot always just give him the best possible gloss. You can't just read that and say, well, it looks pretty bad, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. In fact, normally, oftentimes, he is acting in vile, wicked ways. And he's making himself look good even while he's not actually behaving well. But God loves him. Now what we will not do is say, well then we should just imitate David in all of his rebellion and sin. We're, we're never going to promote sin through the life of David. We're never going to say, well we can just go on being complex people, worshiping God one moment and cursing others the next. But... What we will do is say that is sadly true no matter how much we try and work against it. Praise be to God for His limitless grace that we, we have a God who knows us. And you don't have to dress up for God. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your good and your bad, your light and your darkness. God loved David in spite of, and maybe sometimes because of, his complexity and his self-contradictions. But what we learn about God, what we learn about the gospel through the life of David is that the gospel is big enough for a man like David. And the gospel is big enough for a man like Johnny Cash. And the gospel is big enough for a man like me. And the gospel is big enough for men and women like you. And in that, we worship God. And we give Him all the praise and honor and glory. And lastly, reading the Bible will come alive. If you read David one-dimensionally, no wonder it's hard to read the Bible. I just have no idea what this has to do with anything. But if you see David for who he is, and you see what God does in and through him, all of a sudden the Bible's three-dimensional and you're drawn to it. You want to know more. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for David. I thank you for his vertical and his horizontal, his faith and his cunning. I pray as we get to know David more that you would help us to see him clearly. And as we see David clearly, like looking in a mirror, help us to understand ourselves and the, the seeming contradictions in ourselves. And I pray always that you would draw us to the vertical plane, that you would help us to receive the grace, the love, and the mercy that you've poured out on us and to respond vertically with worship and praise and lives that are fitting response to all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. But Lord, on those days and in those moments when we, like David, are, are acting purely on the horizontal with no regard for you, I thank you that the anchor will hold beyond the veil, that, that we will remain in your love 
because you are a big God, so much bigger than our self-contradictions. And we thank you for that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus who has saved us. Amen.